Support for this week's episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards. Applications and nominations are open now. The Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards honor up to 15 Jewish teens from across the United States with an award of $36,000 to recognize their impact and leadership to repair the world. Nominate a teen today, or they can apply directly by January 5th. Learn more at dillerteenawards.org. That's D-I-L-L-E-R teenawards.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 350, God as a Woman. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are so excited to welcome our guest today, Liana Fink, who is a frequent contributor of cartoons to The New Yorker, whose recent graphic novel is called Let There Be Light, the real story of her creation. And it's a graphic novel that is basically a retelling of the book of Genesis that takes as its jumping off point that God is a woman. Our conversation was inspired by our conversation a few weeks ago with Alicia Jo Rabins when we were talking about her book, Even God Had Bad Parenting Days. And she happened to mention in the conversation that this book existed, which we didn't know about. And we were so excited by the idea that somebody had retold the book of Genesis this way that we knew that we had to have this conversation with her. So we're really excited to get into this conversation today. We're especially excited about it because it actually dovetails with the launch of our next series of classes in the Yeshiva. in particular two of them. One of them is a class in which we are studying Torah Ta, which was that version of the Torah where the genders are all reversed. And so what would it be like to study the Torah where all the genders are reversed? And you can do that in this class. And also, I'm teaching a class on the book of Genesis, but without necessarily the religious understandings that have informed the reading of the book of Genesis all along. Now, these classes have already started, but actually you can still register and join the classes in progress. Why? Because the Unyeshiva is a digital place of Jewish learning and unlearning. And so you can actually just catch up on the video of the first week of class and join the class in progress or just do the whole class asynchronously if you want. So if you're interested in signing up for one of those classes about the Bible, Lex is also teaching a class on the book of Numbers, or we have a couple of other great classes, one on raising Jewish children, one on scientifically grounded Judaism. Just head to judaismunbound.com classes, and you can still sign up even though the classes are already in progress. You'll be welcomed to come live whenever you arrive, and you'll also be welcomed to just take the class asynchronously if that's what you prefer. So head over to judaismunbound.com classes to sign up, especially if you enjoy today's conversation and want to keep thinking more along these lines. So let's jump into our conversation with Liana Fink. Again, her most recent book that we're talking about today is called Let There Be Light, the real story of her creation. Liana Fink has also created two other graphic books. One is called Passing for Human, a graphic memoir, which was named one of the best books of the year by The Guardian, New York Magazine, and Kirkus Reviews. And also, excuse me, cartoons, complaints, and notes to sell. Liana Fink is a regular contributor to The New Yorker, The All, and Catapult. She is a recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship, a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship, and a Six Points Fellowship for Emerging Jewish Artists. We are really thrilled to welcome her to the show and to have this conversation. So, Liana Fink, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. 
Yeah, well, it's not every day that we get to talk to somebody who has rewritten a part of the Torah. So, but, but actually, this is not the first day that we've had a conversation of that nature. So we're excited to have that as a subgenre of this podcast. I wanted to start, actually, on, a, on, on that line and ask you, what was the process that led up to your writing this book? This book has its roots in the book that I wrote before this book, which is called Passing for Human, which is a memoir told in little fragments about my and my mom's experience as female artists. And one of the fragments is a pretty straight up illustrated version of part of the King James Bible, weirdly, um, just the beginning of the creation story. And that's where this God character came from. And I loved making it. It's the first, I think it's the first comic I ever made that I liked. It was originally published in the Forward newspaper and my editor liked it and suggested I do all of Genesis in that style, which was and wasn't. This book's different from that. What is the hubris and what is the, uh, just, I'm a graphic artist, I'll, I'll just do this. And, and I guess that's hubris too, but I guess I'm, yeah. I'm saying like, when you think about going into rewriting the book of Genesis with a take that God is going to now be a woman, does, is that an easy thing for you to do? Is that just something where you sit down and say, okay, now I'm on this project? Or is that something that you spent some time really wondering whether I ought to be doing this or whether I feel good about doing this? I think the hubris for me was that it's a very informal project. It's very like funny and light and not serious. And I don't give God or the patriarchs a ton. I don't, I give them the respect of treating them as human beings, but I don't give them the respect of treating them as gods or patriarchs. And yeah, I think I didn't, I didn't give it weight in my own mind. And that was like the kind of thing that gets people hit. Like, I'm not giving the weight that other people give to this thing to it. It was hard in that it's taken me a really long time to let myself speak in my normal voice, but it was easy in that it is my normal way of seeing things and of speaking. I have had trouble finding a way into Judaism, but it's more it's more that I don't let myself do it my own way. And this was me finally letting myself in. I have about 613 questions about specific things in your book. I, I didn't count them all, but I, I feel like it's around that. But before I get into all of them, I mean, I appreciate hearing a little bit about what led to this book. For listeners out there that haven't read it yet, I mean, all of them certainly will because they're going to be so excited to to purchase and read. But if we were just doing the what, like what, is, like obviously there's like a description on the back cover of the book, but like... In your words, what is this book? Because I could hear, like, I, I could imagine 10 different people reading this and describing it in actually a variety of different ways, like overlapping ways. But how would you characterize the what of what this book is? Or maybe like a couple possible what's of what the book is? That is such an astute question because I don't, know how to describe a book I've written until after I've written it that like that doesn't come naturally to me and I'm in awe of people who are better at it but it is an adaptation of the book of Genesis with a female god a little girl god who slowly grows up over the course of the book and it is a graphic novel and it's funny and it is 
my attempt to turn the book of Genesis into something that I can relate to and love without straying too far from the actual text. This is how I see God anyway. This is how I read it. So it's my, the great thing about being a graphic novelist and working in pictures is you can take you like you can get your own inner version of a story really onto paper. You don't leave so much to the reader's imagination. I was also very conscious of God not being so much of a character later on and being the main character very early on. And that that very first bit of the creation story that I'd adapted for my memoir, it was all about God. And so the book that my editor, who I don't think has ever read the Bible possibly, was envisioning and that I was very spacely envisioning, even though I have read the Torah, was a book all about God. So all these factors went into my, sol- like solving the problem of this story being kind of a story that promises one thing at the beginning and turns into something quite different towards the middle and then the end. I solved that by having this ebullient, creative, shy girl character go through the evolution that I went through, which is into a a more self-conscious, quiet tween who's afraid to speak up and then maybe into a really moody teenager. I think she, the, the story ends with God as a teenager. That's so interesting. I mean, like it, it actually tracks my experience as a reader because looking at the book cover where you see God as a woman on the cover and, you know, you read the the back cover or whatever, and you're expecting this book that's about a female God. And then you're like, okay, so this whole book is going to be about that female God and what happens. And then all of a sudden she's not really present for a big part of the the book. And in retrospect, you set that up by uh, having God th- go through this Kabbalistic idea of the Tzimtzum, the, the God's withdrawal from the world and uh, making space for the world to exist. And so it's kind of all set up in ways that actually brought me more in touch with Jewish ideas than I expected to be. You know, I expected this book to be a book about God, and instead it was a book about a set of Jewish ideas, and and uh, that that was that was a really fascinating experience. Uh, did, did that relate to the fact that in the early stories, such as Gen- the Genesis, the creation story, and Noah, these are taking place in obviously uh, a distant past, but the patriarch stories of Abraham and Isaac and the, are taking place in the present or in a sort of present day, and the Joseph story is taking place in, in the future. W- was that related to the idea of this God kind of uh, only being most actively present in in a very ancient mythic time and not so much in in the present and future? How how did you think about those time jumps? Yeah, the time jumps came in pretty late. I must have done three full drafts of Abraham in the past and just they just didn't work. Like the story of God as this timeless ancient thing creating the world is really on my wavelength. Like that's something that I naturally want to do. I'm kind of simple. I'm kind of silly. I don't pay much attention to detail. I'm into emotion. The story of Abraham is so different. It's a story I would read, but it's not a story I relate to or a story I would tell. And I'd already started the 
book when I realized that. But the story of Abraham is much more like the story of Odysseus or something or the story of Beowulf. He's a hero and he's going on a journey and he doesn't have a lot of weird childlike emotions as far as I can see. He's he's kind of a monomaniac and he's a good man in a way that I find somewhat inaccessible and boring. Anyhow, I I needed to make a lot of different moves. If you think of a book like a chess game in order to explain why this is a story I would tell and why this is a story that's connected to the God story that I just told, the creation story. And one of the moves I made was to bring in the Kabbalistic theory of Tzimtzum, an explanation of why God withdraws from the world he's created or he's created, if you believe that, that God made the world and then withdrew so that her creations could create themselves a little bit and figure themselves out. My mom suggested that I do this. My mom is really, she's a good reader. And then after I did that, in order to tell the Abraham story, I needed to make a new style. So the God's story is drawn more or less in the style I usually use with a kind of thin, wavery pen line, quick, funny, not fussy. But the Abraham story is a story of kind of a monomaniac who takes himself seriously and is kind of classic male hero. And my favorite stories of male heroes are the artist stories. I really went in for those when I was a teenager. But um just this story of like the special person who's misunderstood and makes their art and is eventually understood and loved by the world. So I decided I also hate those stories and I don't, they don't apply to me. I don't, I did not grow up to turn into a genius artist. I don't feel like a genius artist. I feel like someone who just communicates. So I wanted to kind of parody. I I felt like this, that story of the male genius really dovetailed with the story of the hero who goes on the journey, which is Abraham. And I, I decided to make Abraham into an artist. I said it in the present to explain the huge time leap from um, the story of creation to the story of Abraham. And I used a style that is kind of linked with the male classic artist. It's kind of like a shaded pencil line that is my take on academic drawing. I loved the Abraham part of your book and hearing you say that actually helps me understand why I think, because you took a step that so many Jews who are artists or Jewish artists or whatever terminology we want to use, like that so many people are afraid to take or don't, or maybe I don't know if they're afraid, they just don't take it, which is you struggled with, a character, Abraham. You you had a struggle. With, and your solution was, ah, I'll make a new character. Abraham's going to be an artist. And, it's, and Abraham's going to be now, not a few thousand years. And like, that might sound simple, but I actually think so many people either consciously prevent themselves from doing that. They think, oh, that would be too much chutzpah. Like, I can't, like, Abraham's an ancient story. Like, there is a truth to it, even if I don't think it happened. Like, I can't mess with it. Or not consciously, they're just like, oh, that's Abraham's there. And like, if it doesn't resonate with me, like, okay, I'm not into that part. I'll skip it, go to something else. But your choice to say, to take something that that is a tradition and not just discard it, but say, I'm going to spin it the way that works for me. 
I think that in turn worked for the readers. I don't want to ask you like, how did you convince yourself to be able to take that step of having chutzpah and saying Abraham's an art school? But I am curious because you did that in other cases too. You really drastically shifted who some of these characters were. And what I loved about it is you didn't, in most cases that I can think of, you didn't spend a lot of time explaining that. You you weren't apologizing for like, hey, I know this isn't what Abraham does in the, uh, in Genesis. Here's my verse. Like, you just said, here he is. So I guess the question I'm asking is like, how do we get other people to feel that way? How do we get other people to overcome that obstacle of the text as static and as existing and as sort of not open to our own drastic shifts? Yeah, I think I've never consciously rebelled against Judaism. I always consider myself Jewish and I care about it. But at the same time, I have trouble getting myself to synagogue or shul and yeah, I don't, I don't feel motivated. I don't like reach out to Jewish communities. And I think it's because I don't let myself find a version of things that I can relate to. Partly, it's also partly that I'm afraid of groups and standing in services for three hours is really, really stressful. And I hate to sing because I'm shy. This is, I'm relating to this. <laughs> I do sing alone. <laughs> I'm not a monster. <laughs> I sing alone, but I can't sing in a group because I'm shy. Um, and it, yeah, it, they, I was pushed to sing in a group way too early and it settled into never, ever singing in a group. But I never really admit that I'm doing something with chutzpah. What ends up happening is I think I'm doing something totally good girl and I set out to do something correctly. I set out to do a pretty straight translation or adaptation of the Torah, of the first part of the Torah. Um, but then I just hit this terrible writer's block and, and I, I must have spent two years trying to figure out the story of Abraham. By the time I found my way through, it didn't feel like I was making a radical change at all. It was, it was trial and error. I tried all these small things and finally they accumulated into a relatively big thing. And I'm always surprised when people think it was a big shift because I, I got to it so gradually. I also want to say that Abraham is the only character I really had trouble with. I love Jacob and Asav and Joseph and like all the other ones are great. And I'm not sure why Abraham's the hardest one for me. I'm thinking about these stories. Look, there's a way of thinking about the Bible as like somehow it's history. I mean, that these stories actually happened. And so if you change the stories, you're actually telling a falsehood because that's not how history happened, you know? And if so, if you believe that Abraham was actually some guy that lived in, you know, Beersheba, you know, however many thousands of years ago, then you're like, that, that's the story. Why do you have to change it? If you believe, you know, as I do, that these are meant to be mythic stories, that they're meant to be stories that are uh, not taking place in time, that they're stories that were the efforts of, of, of ancient people at a certain time to tell certain timeless truths through a story that they could relate to at their time, then it almost feels like the more truthful way to tell that story in our time is, you know, to change the setting and to change the, 
you know, job of the of the character, right? Instead of being some wanderer into a new country, he's an artist who's going on the journey of their uh, growth as an artist. And the promise is not the land. The promise is your greatness as, as an artist, right? I mean, so that all makes sense in a community of artists, right? That, of course, we should rewrite these stories so that they relate to us. So I guess what I'm asking is when you, and, and I have to admit a little bit of selfishness in asking this question because I'm about to start teaching a class uh, that I'm calling Remythologizing Genesis, where I'm uh, trying to guide people to do exactly this. So I, I'd actually love to get a little bit of uh, your secrets about how to, how to go, how you went about it. But I mean, I, I guess my question is, when you approach the Bible that way, to the extent that you did, what do you find there in terms of the real story that the Bible is trying to tell, or the real stories that the Bible is trying to tell, that most people miss because they are too stuck in the historical setting and in the idea that this is somehow some historical thing that happened, as opposed to a a mythic effort to tell big truths by ancient people. That's so interesting. I never, I think of the Torah very much as an oral tradition and like some a story that people pass on to each other and the story contains a grain of the original history and it also contains a layer of each person who's retold it and i'm just adding a layer of my own retelling to the story it's like a snowball somehow being a graphic novelist frees you up to get back into retelling mode as opposed to being stuck in the in the words as they were written for the original written Torah mode. And I'm not sure why. I think it's because we there's something really unofficial and casual about comics um, that's similar to verbal storytelling. I don't know exactly why, but that's my sense. So yes. And I mean another reason is that I just I can't make something history because I'm not a great researcher. And I don't know if it's even possible to know what people wore and like what their facial hair looked like exactly. And I just don't have the interest or time in like doing really, really good visual research. So sometimes it's like of necessity to tell a story to just draw people in a kind of imaginary world. I did read a bunch of Robert Alter when I was working on this book. My favorite translation was, I I read it in Hebrew and I tried to translate from Hebrew, but I also read a bunch of English translations and I was really feeling his translation partly because it is an audio book read by Eduardo Ballerini and he's great. And I also read a little bit of Robert Alter on like the history of when the Torah was written down. And like, for instance, the story of Dina is to explain why we don't like, like it's it's all this like very niche and of its time nationalistic stuff. And like why two of the tribes didn't have their own lands and why we don't like certain other people and why we fought, why the Jews fought certain people. And I was interested in it, but I didn't think my audience would be interested in it. So like that freed me up from like, there's a reason for so much, like there is a historical reason for so much of what's in the Torah and it's not part of the story and I can let it go. So what I was left with was just the story part. But at the same time, I like to hold on to some of the things that didn't matter and that were just absurd, such as the long begats strings I thought were so funny and I kept them in. Well, I loved I loved what you said about that, that they were all miraculous begats because they don't mention the the woman that was involved. Yeah. So I draw 
babies popping out of men's armpits and stuff. And there's all this blood and gore. I was like about to consider starting to try to get pregnant and have a baby. So birth was very much on my mind at the time. But I was seeing it as a preserved slice of time of when it was written down. And I think people were really preoccupied, especially in the very early part with explaining why humans are special, like why we're better than the animals. And I think underlying is the question, are we different from animals? Are we not animals? But it's it kind of reads to me as propaganda for saying we are different from animals and and God was invented by us to explain why we were chosen and we were better than the animals. So I'm really fascinated to hear. I also liked the part that Dan referenced where with the begats, how you drew that. I thought it was so cool. And I experienced it as, and I experienced a lot of this book as what some people would term midrash, as, as you taking actually very ancient questions. I mean, there's been a lot of people for thousands of years who have noticed like, where the hell are the wives? A little over 2,000 years ago, the Book of Jubilees, which is itself a rewritten, some of the, the genre people call it, is rewritten Bible. It's a rewritten Genesis. And in that rewritten Genesis, you get to the part with the begats, and all of a sudden, a bunch of women appear. We actually get names of all the wives that are from the generations uh, from Adam through Noah, and I believe also the generations from Noah through Abraham, those lists. And... What I love is a world in which we have that approach and yours. What I love is an approach where there's one text that says, what's the deal? We we don't have any of these women, so I'm going to put them in the story. Like, we're, we're going to make sure that there are women in this story so that then later generations could have beautiful folklore about those women. We can have fan fiction. Like, that's what Jubilees did. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that book didn't become canonized, so we don't have the layers of later folklore that we might in a parallel universe. And then there's also your approach, which is, I'm not going to actually solve this by creating women. I'm going to say this text like made men the solitary creators of like we don't even talk about that. Mm-hmm. And and, we're, and so I'm going to visually portray that for you to wrestle with that like men are being made the sort of solo bearers of children. And so there's an I'm envisioning in an ecosystem, right? And what I mean I like what I dream of and is to some extent happening right now is a world where it's not that Liana Fink's portrayal of Genesis becomes the new version. Like, I don't want, uh, that's not my idea. And I don't think it's your idea. Like, my idea is that. I wouldn't mind. We, well, yeah, I think it'd be better in many ways. But, like, what I envision. Great. Like, I'm really anti. I was thinking about, like, if this were the official God, if this were the real God, I, the world would be terrible in a lot of other ways. Well, yeah. And I'm going to. So I've got another question about that later. But, like, the exciting thing for me is what your book is as an exemplar, as a model, not as sort of the answer, but as one of a, a universe of other answers. I'm imagining the person that would come along and write a rewritten Genesis where God's an animal. You talked beautifully just a few minutes ago about how so much of Genesis is about, like, proclaiming human dominance. I'd love for somebody to come along and say, like, what if God is coming from the animal kingdom and how would that shift the death? Somebody else could come along and say, what if God is, like, how we envision an alien on a different planet? Like, I actually think that's a reasonable read in certain senses. Yeah. Um, Like, we could have a whole different selection of different images of God, and I'm using that phrase on purpose. Do you hope that this book 
sort of sparks a movement of other rewritten genesises. What might you envision this book like doing to the world of approaches to Genesis? Yeah, I I started out thinking I wanted to do a version of Genesis with a female God. And I realized that what I did was, which is very hubristic, was a version of Genesis with me as a God. It's a self-portrait. <laughs> she's shy. She's an artist. She's self-conscious in a way that I don't really know anyone else who's that self-conscious. It's my dark secret. Um, but what I realized as I was writing it is like, it is hubristic, but it's not, it's also democratic. I would really like everyone to have that kind of innocent hubris I have. And I would read anyone's version of Genesis with anyone's God or anyone's version of any God text with their God or gods. Um, there is something I wanted to say about um, how I kind of told this story straight and highlighted the sexism as opposed to solving it. And I've never heard of the Book of Jubilees and I'm so excited to read it. Oh, I'll send you a lot of links. This is yes, my favorite. Please. Thank you. And listeners, see the show notes. We'll have some links to Jubilee stuff. So I don't know if this, I don't think this is good and I'm not advocating it, but I grew up and I'm still deeply attached to a lot of female, but not feminist literature. I love fairy tales. I love that they kind of show things the way they are are in a certain way, although mytho mythologized, they show what it's the, the dangers and the unfairness of being a woman as opposed to trying to solve them. And one of my favorite books growing up was Seven Gothic Tales by Isaac Dennison. It's it, it's a book of fairy tales, basically. And that's why I love it. And, and it's quite sexist and it's quite feminist and it's all mixed up. I love Scheherazade. I love how she tells these super sexist stories to this king who she's having babies with in order for him to not kill her. Like it's so problematic, but it just seems so honest and, and vindicating to me. And and so I do a bit come from that, but I also a bit come from questioning that. And I think I'm always wrestling with how I feel about highlighting versus trying to fix things. I don't think my God is a feminist, but she is kind of a pre-feminist powerful woman who doesn't pay enough attention to other women. I brought the other Kabbalistic thing I brought into this book besides the theory of Tsimtsum was the character of Lilith. And I have God really dislike Lilith because she's another powerful. Uh, I don't know if I even gender her in this book, but she's definitely not a man. And m maybe she's non-binary. Maybe she's a woman. And God also the reason I give for God loving the patriarchs is that God just has crushes on men and she cares about men and she doesn't care about women. And I used to be that way. I had another question. I'll, I'll be a little autobiographical for a second. Um, I do not believe in a personal God. I don't believe in a God that is male. I don't believe in a God that is female. I don't believe in a God that is non-binary and human. But basically, I want to bring up that like one easy seeming critique of your book that somebody could bring is what's the deal like still god is a person here right mm -hmm. like god's not actually a person we don't like the solution to god's not an old man in the sky yeah on the one hand could be god's a young woman in the sky or it could be god is not a man or woman a person like god is something separate from that or mm -hmm. by the way it could be that there isn't 
a god. Like, that's a perfectly valid answer. I think that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, I, being somebody who does not have a personal conception of God, still loved this portrayal. Because once again, I see this as an ecosystem. And if I think that roughly everything is God, if I think God is present in all matter, in all people, in all animals, in all things, then a world that doesn't have midrashes where God is a woman, where God is a man, where God is a non-binary person, where God is an animal, where God is a thing, where God, like, that world is insufficient because our images of God in our heads are going to be limited to just sort of the default normative understanding of God. And that, by and large, is a male conception of God, both within Judaism and in broader society when we use the word God. I guess I'd love to hear your approach to folks who might say, like, but Liana, you just made a new person God, and that's not what I want to see in the world. How would you how would you respond to those folks? I would tell those people to make their own version of the Torah. I have some trouble with God in that I think I should have been an idol worshiper. I have much more understanding of of worshiping a rock than of believing in a nebulous figure. I really was a bit of an animist until I grew up. Like I could not bear to let go of a rock that I found. I thought everything had a soul, especially concrete things that I could hold in my hands. I also always felt that way about the drawings I made. They had souls. I also related a lot more to animals than to human beings. I'm definitely not into nebulous, powerful energy. I would be so shy around that. It would make me feel so <laughs> self-conscious and fearful. And and even human beings, they're just a bit much, um, a bit too powerful and too abstract and speak too much in words. I prefer things you can look at and just know what they're like or feel that, at least feel that you know what they're like. So maybe my God is less a woman than a drawing. Whoa. I would really love to talk about this one piece that blew me away and I loved it in so many ways, which is in the story of Jacob. Classically in the Bible, Jacob actually has four wives or four partners, uh, two two wives and two concubines. The, the piece that I'm really interested in is that in your book, you have Leah, one of Jacob's two wives, as an idol. And Somehow, miraculously, she pops out seven children all of a sudden, uh, you know, but so, uh, so so some of the children are retained. But she herself is an idol that was her father's idol. And there's a whole story in the Bible about how when Jacob is leaving his father-in-law, Rachel takes the idol. And, and in this story, it's Leah, which is awesome. But I mean, I'd love for you to go into a little bit what you were trying to capture by doing that. It was similar to turning Abraham into an artist. It was, I tried so, so many times to do that story more straight up with Leah and with, with the two concubines. And I just couldn't, I also spent a really long time on the story of Hagar and I took her out eventually. I just couldn't, I had to do so much explaining and changing of the text to explain why these men would have two wives. Like it just didn't work in 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 a story about the present day, I had to go all like Esther Perel, all Dan Savage. Like there was like people having polyamorous awakenings and realizing that they have to, they're polyamorous. And it's like, there's a lot of like people's feelings involved, like Sarah's working through her feelings and oh my goodness. And it was just, 
it took over the book and it was exhausting. And, and the other alternative was to have these people be monsters and like having, like having slaves, Abraham having a slave in the modern day and Sarah, and it was turning into fiction. I did not want this to be fiction. I wanted this to stay as close to the text as it could. And I turned Leia into an idol um, because idols do keep cropping up in the Torah. And I, I really wanted to explain what they were and what the draw of idols was to the people who worship them and also explore why the patriarchs and God hate idols so much. And I think it's always been such a mystery to me that we hate idols so much because I think I, I really like them. So I, I guess I put my own liking of idols into this story by making Leia kind of a positive character and an idol. I made Levon into kind of a dishonest dummy who's obsessed with his toys. Like he's just like a guy who's <laughs> obsessed with his toys. So maybe that's what we don't like about idols. For what it's worth, two ideas. One was that I started to think of it, her as an AI, like in the movie, her, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Scarlett Johansson, that, that that was kind yeah. of a, you she know. She was that, a and... robot. She was a robot in an earlier version and then she became oh, um... an idol. And then I wonder like whether the other children are real, you know, or sort of figments of, of Jacob's yeah. imagination. But that... Uh, just a, a quick note, which is that one of my favorite ideas uh, from uh, Richard Elliott Friedman, the Bible scholar, is that the whole opposition to idol worship was based on a misunderstanding by the Israelites of the surrounding religions. And they thought that they were stupid people that were worshiping idols, but actually they weren't. They understood that the idols were just symbols yeah. of the gods in the same way. You know, he talks about people that have, you know, a Jesus figure on their car dashboard. Like they know that's not Jesus, you know, and but right. but you can yeah. imagine that a misunderstanding. Oh, so fascinating. But I also feel like as a graphic novelist who's like breaking the rule against depicting people and God, it would be so hypocritical of me to be anti-idol. I have synesthesia so i see everything is visual to me and i love text but text is visual to me like i see it in colors and stuff words often have an like a concrete image to them that isn't related to their meaning so yeah i think i've just never i just don't fathom an injunction against images everything is image i'm flashing back to a moment way early in our podcast when Amichal Alavi said that if he had been there at the the Golden Calf, he would have contributed to its creation and like unapologetically because yeah. um, I love this steady stream we have of like questioning idol prohibitions or questioning how questioning the idea that it's bad to try and distill holiness into object form. Um, yeah. And so I'm really appreciative to you. And I also think that like to listeners who have synesthesia consistently Folks who have forms of synesthesia have really cool takes on Torah. And I hope that you create, I hope that you follow your instincts. I'm going to say um, something against the golden calf, which is that when I think of idols, I think of them as like really simple and cute and like understated, which maybe they weren't. But the golden calf to me is like something that a museum would pay billions of dollars for. Like the people were taking themselves way too seriously when they made it. I have a question 
that relates to the the two moments you've mentioned, and maybe there were others, where you tried really hard to, in your words, like play it straight with Abraham to like follow the way that that character is drawn and not drawn, but the way that character is described in Genesis. And it didn't work for you. And with Leia too, like you tried to to do those pieces more by the book in the literal sense of by the book. And eventually you realize like you had to go a different direction. And I think folks could hear that as like, wow, that's such like a a modernist or a postmodernist thing to do. But I actually think it's exactly what Jewish tradition has been doing always, 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 always. Like I'm imagining the rabbis of the Talmud sitting around like, hmm, this Hanukkah thing where it's all about the Maccabees winning this military battle really doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have this thing where we try to make it about miracles and about oil lasting for a long time when it should have lasted for less time. That Literally, there's no there's no idea of that before hundreds and hundreds of years after the events of the Maccabee rebellion happened. But they said, we're going to make it up because yeah. we prefer this version. Song of Songs. It's this borderline pornographic tale of two people and their sexuality with one another. And at a certain set of points, some rabbis were like, and I don't like this one, actually. They were like, this doesn't work for me. We're going to make this a love story not between two people, but between humanity or the Jewish people and God. So over and over, and we could go down the list of like every holiday, every book, like over and over again, people have given themselves license to say, nope, this doesn't work for me. The way this was written is not how I'm going to do it. We're going to create our own version now that works for our time. And then that's going to be the new Jewish tradition. But then like a few hundred years pass and we pretend that Hanukkah always was about the oil or we pretend Song of Songs was always about God and the Jewish people when it wasn't. We erase that creative act because somehow we think that that action of creativity, like if we if we pull back the veil, if we show that it happened, we're making it unholy. Like it, mm-hmm. it needs to have been that way all along for it to count. But I'm curious if you have words of wisdom, pearls for people out there to really feel like what they're doing, if they want to, if they want to say, this doesn't work for me, here's my version of God. Here's my version of this holiday. Here's my version of this ritual. How might they get over the so many hurdles that stand in the way of actually taking the step of creating something new? I love that. I don't have an answer. I think I only get past the hurdles when I don't realize that I'm doing it. And I I really need to work on this going forward. I haven't felt connected to Torah since I finished this book. And I've been really sad about that. I really miss it. I haven't been giving myself license to, to, to do it my way. I think. Do you think that if you were to write a book, you know, at some point in the future about the book of Exodus or something else in the Torah, the experience of having done this book in the way that you describe, where you know you didn't necessarily set out to do, but now that in retrospect you can see what you've done, you see people's responses to it. How do you think that that would affect the way you approached doing a, an analogous piece of work, or or would it not? I think I chose with this book to keep things as close to as they are as I could, while changing one thing, which is that I made God a girl. I would be interested in the in the future to see if I could do a takeoff where I made more and more changes, just decided God was a girl and then 
made a whole new story from there. I don't know if it would work, but I'd be curious to try. Part of this feels like, what would it be like to go back in time and interview one of the people who actually had edited together the document that we have come to call the Torah? Mm-hmm. We generally, like in academia and in all kinds of contexts, if we think, sort of think of it as like, oh, these people, they were... And you talked about it too, like when you were talking about how uh, the story of Dina, uh, you know, really they were these like these were these political machinations going on, and and they were really carefully putting all these stories in in order to try to make various cases for political resolutions that they wanted. But I wonder if you might actually talk to the people, and they would have said, "Well, no, I mean, this is I actually just sort of set out to write the story in a certain way, and yeah. this is kind of what came out." Which, by yeah. the way is exactly what Aaron says about the golden calf. You know, he says, well, I don't know. I just sort of threw in this gold and, and all of a sudden out popped this calf. Oh, I and love he's that. meant to be criticized for that. But yeah. part of me feels like, no, that's actually probably his experience of it. Oh, that's so beautiful. I do think it's so damaging, damaging, but gorgeous that art is mythologized to the point that we think that it couldn't be any other way because that's, I mean, and I'm calling the Torah art because that's not what it's like to make art. You really don't know what you're doing when you're making something. But it's also so beautiful. Like I I think my I think I do really worship text and art because and I do really go in for this myth that it comes from somewhere holy in it and it comes fully formed, which it doesn't. That's not true. So when I make something, it really doesn't feel like the art that I love. There's this huge gap. I once again, just want to call on people to read your book. And it's short enough that they could even read it multiple times and sort of look at it from different angles. I think there's something powerful to to doing a read. I, I did one read so far, and I, I do think I focused mostly on the character of God. And I think if I were to do it again, I would like... If I had post-it notes, I'd like cover up all the... I'd like just focus on everything else and then take them off and bring it back. Um are there any closing thoughts you want to leave people with about your book or about sort of the essential pieces of it that might be replicated in others? I do think that among other things in this book, and this is another reason that it was important to me to turn Abraham into an artist character. I was making a new mythology for myself about what it means to be an artist. I was thinking of God as the ultimate artist. And I was recreating the myth of what it means to be an artist. I was give, I was, I was given a myth of a very powerful and godlike artist who knows exactly what they're doing and is completely committed to their work and puts it before everything else and won't take criticism because the artist is always right. And I replaced that with an artist who's more like me, because I haven't seen a mythologized mer- version of that kind of artist. And because of that, it's hard for me to be myself without a version of an artist who's like me to look up to. And this artist is just always making things and always disappointed that the things she's making aren't even better and always destroying what she's made in a snit and starting over again. But she also has this pure childlike joy just in making something and and I want to remember that about making art and about myself because I it's that's something that's so easy to lose so I was in some ways I was making the god I believe in but in other ways I was making the god I need here I needed a shy creative god 
thank you so much, Liana Fink, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. This was so much fun. Thank you. Really, really meaningful. Thanks for doing it. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close this episode out by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, there's our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. All of those handles are at Judaism Unbound. Second, there's our website, JudaismUnbound.com. You can head there to learn about our Yeshiva courses that are being offered right now. Even though they have begun, you can actually sign up late and take them asynchronously or catch up and then take them synchronously in real time, whatever works for you. So head to JudaismUnbound.com slash classes for that. And you can also email us, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com with any questions, thoughts, angry comments, whatever you've got, we would be thrilled to hear from you. So We are appreciative to you for listening. And the last thing that we would say is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that... This has been Judaism Unbound.